you're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 336, and I'm your co-host, Nick Schwaderer. Hey, Brittany, how's it going? I'm doing quite well, Nick. It's so great to have you back on again. Yeah, it's great to be here co-hosting and, and everything. And uh, what's new? How, how are things in your corner of the world? Oh, my corner, my corner of the world is very different. And so I think I've kind of alluded to it on some of the episodes that we've recorded up to this one. But Nick, you are my very favorite co-host. So of course, I waited until you were back on the podcast so that we could discuss all the changes. Um, But I have recently shifted roles. So I quietly changed my LinkedIn, quietly changed my Twitter and my GitHub. But I am the new engineering lead for the back end at TextUs. Woo! Congratulations. That is that is huge, right? I don't even know where to begin, but uh, I guess the best place is at the beginning. So uh, how long ago did you kind of find your way into the world of Texas? Yeah, so um, as the listeners know, I've been at the Trust for about five years, which was fantastic because I leveled up so much of the Trust. A lot of my conference talks that I gave came from the work that I was doing at the Trust. I loved that I was working at a nonprofit, affecting the arts in the Pittsburgh community, because when I came back from San Francisco, I really wanted to get reinvolved with Pittsburgh, and there was no better place to do it. With the Trust being a small nonprofit, and you know, there was only so many places that I could grow upwards, you know, I decided to start considering my options. And so I came across TextUs and TextUs basically is uh, a business class text messaging software and they're built in Rails, which of course is very important to me as the host of this show to continue working on Ruby on Rails. You know, I have bet my career on it. And they, Texas currently serves the uh, staffing and recruiting industries mainly, though they also serve a lot of different industries. But um, it's a really interesting and complex code base, and they use a lot of the dry principles, which is something that I was somewhat familiar with, but I hadn't worked um, one-on-one with. So how about you, Nick? How do you use a lot of dry RB? Um, so when you say dry principles, do you mean like actually using like dry RB and the dry RB tooling in the code yes. base? Yes, yes, heavily. Oh my goodness. So I have literally just wandered so far as hearing about it in a podcast or, you know, and I and, and I think I follow all the maintainers on Twitter and reading about it, but I've never crossed that threshold to actually uh, using it even in, in a, a toy app. So how has it been... Uh, kind of seeing that world. I imagine it's quite interesting. Yeah, I'm coming off of a code base where we used a lot of service objects. So in some ways, there are some principles there that are somewhat familiar where you don't, you know, stack all of your logic into your models and controllers. But uh, dry principles, it's just, it's very clean. And I'll tell you that during the interview process with Texas, which first of all was a really fantastic interview process, and I hope a lot of companies have processes like this, it, my interview process probably took, I would say, about five weeks. And that involved a lot of one-on-one conversations with their product manager, the CTO, their chief architect, my partner who is the engineering lead for the front end, and just really making sure that it was a good culture fit. And then I ended up doing a pair session with the chief architect and 
what was neat about it is that we tackled some very railsy problems. But then um, as towards the end of the interview, he gave me some examples of how my code could change to actually reflect those dry principles and how that is how they manage the code in their code base. And I left that interview just feeling so intrigued about how I feel that I knew Ruby on Rails fairly well, but just seeing it in that sense, it got me really curious. And I was like, this is, this is I think, going to be great for my career. It must be amazing to get another set of eyes because I have to commend you, you know, uh, there's a a strong trend in tech where people, you don't hear the five years that often anymore, I don't think. You you see as short as 18 months to, I'd say even three years, I'd look at and LinkedIn and say, wow, that was a while. So, so it's definitely, you know, there's all the... Um, normal aspects with changing changing a job but i think from a code aspect just seeing these different ideas you know and uh it's like a super learning experience all over again if you're around a, a bunch of intelligent people working in this code base and, and especially with tooling that you may not have used before so it must be um an absolute thrill um but one quick question Actually, I might have a couple on the interview process, if you don't mind, because I find there's maybe people, who, definitely people listening who've applied, people possibly who uh, hire as well. And I think it's such a wild area because in tech, there's a million different ways this process can go, right? So um, I guess the first I'll ask is around the, the, the role specifically. Did you find that there, how did they treat the process differently since it was a lead role as opposed to you know, maybe an engineering, you know, back end engineering, front end, but engineering lead is quite a specific, you know, role with that extra responsibility. Did you find that there were different elements tailored to that role as well? Yeah, that's such a good question. So one of the first things that they wanted to check was that I was somewhat familiar with the tooling that they already use. And I was lucky in the sense that they wanted someone who had experience extensively with Ruby on Rails, Elasticsearch, Active Jobs, Sidekick, AWS. And so I was lucky in the fact that my stack very much lined up with the stack that they were looking for. But then also, and you raise a really good point here, because it was a lead role, they really wanted to make sure that I gelled well with the product manager because in that lead role you're definitely going to be doing a lot of product discovery and prioritizing ranking you know just making sure that the engineers are the most efficient as possible and so it was exciting to me to get back into that product management scope just because I used to be a product manager before I learned how to code and I've really been looking for a reason to go back to it but then secondly one of my interviews was actually just with the team that I would be managing and so just finding out what inspires them, it, talking about one-on-ones, making sure that those are going to gel well. And so just making sure that I had a good dynamic with the team. And so that can be really stressful because you're basically, you know, interviewing with a whole group of people and you're saying, hey, I want to come into this organization. And even though I know the least, I'm going to somehow manage you. And so it definitely kicks in your imposter syndrome for sure. No, I, I definitely hear you there, you know, um, and, but, you know, the fact is they need a lead and they're, and they've, you know, you, you, you've come together and it's, it's really exciting. Is the, is the company primarily on site or I think you did say earlier and sorry if you didn't, but I may have some insider knowledge about this, um, role being remote, but how is that kind of, uh, 
factored in um, so far? Because I don't think we've said roughly how long you've been there. Yeah, that's a great question. So I am mid I am midweek on my third week, which is incredible to me because the company is so fast paced and I feel so busy already that it feels like I've been there a long time. But I'm only on week three, but you do raise a good point. So Texas is based out of Boulder, Colorado. But what's interesting is that because of the pandemic, they've had a bit of a hiring spree where they've brought on a decent amount of developers, the CTO and the CEO are newer. And so those those kinds of hires actually happened during the pandemic. So those roles, while they are based in Colorado currently, they haven't been working together in an office. So it's been an interesting dynamic where I'm not even in the same time zone as everybody, But what really works out well is that my partner, who is the front end lead, he's based in Boston. And so we kind of get a couple hours together in the morning together, and then the whole team comes online. And so this is really me committing to this remote first forever. And so going into the pandemic, I I didn't know if remote was going to be for me. And it turns out I really gel with it. I really like it. And so when Textus was open for me being remote forever, I, I took that as a good sign because ultimately with the trust, I would have had to go back to the office once the pandemic was over. That's that's a really interesting uh, point you raise as well. But like I, I think for nearly a decade now, there's been folks, particularly in the Rails community, particularly DHH, it's you know another thing of of his has been um, really on remote work, right? And I think his first book with Jason Fried was called Remote or or something like that. It came out quite a while ago, and there's been so much work to try and explain to people about the positive benefits a company can have being fully remote and it's you know it's slowly got there um but it's not fully there but it seems that this year every company that was the last bastion of resistance is kind of uh toppled because that you know once you don't have a choice and once you realize that and even people not in tech um um, some of my friends have been saying that they've been getting remote options now um but it's it must be almost an advantage where the people who would be on site are all kind of remote. So you have one sphere of kind of talking through, you're all having the same experience, right? Like right now, my office, there's uh, maybe 10% of the company lives in Belfast, but we're not in the office, we're all remote. So everybody's on the same playing field here. And um, I think it's good. So, but you'd say three weeks in, cause you were, you would have been on site in your last role, right? So, um, but so far, a few weeks in, you're you're definitely enjoying it. Um, is it nice not having a commute and all the, those sorts of things as well. Absolutely, I think what is a big change for me as as a developer of the trust, and this is a selling point to developers who are interested. Um, we will provide a link in the show notes if you are interested in applying at the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. They are going to be open to filling my role as a for a remote developer. And so if you are a Ruby on Rails developer, like midway into your career, I highly recommend that you uh, you reach out and apply. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me personally as well. I'll be one of the people who would help you onboard because I do feel strongly that when you leave a job, you should leave the door open a little bit just to make sure that you know, whatever situation you're leaving is, you know, they're covered because I really do. I had a great time at the trust and I really want to make sure they're covered. 
But going back to Texas, what's very different for me is that I was very protected at the trust in terms of being in a lot of meetings. Um, Because it was only a developer team of two, we really wanted to make sure that we stayed out of meetings when we didn't need to be necessarily in them. Now, as an engineering lead at Texas, I'm in a lot of meetings. Probably today, I was in at least six hours of meetings, and I was very active in all of those meetings. And so you definitely have to be cognizant of, you know, Zoom fatigue and making sure that you're taking care of yourself, especially when you're remote. But it's also really fun for me to get back into that meeting space and be able to voice my opinion and really have a hand in the product. Wow, that that's, that definitely makes sense. It seems that the the farther one can go in their career and the more responsibility, it's it is harder to kind of avoid you know being a stakeholder, right? That they, they want to hear what you have to say, and they definitely you know want you and your experience. So they probably don't want you to hide. So that's wonderful that they're you know utilizing you so much so quickly. And and how is that so? kind of onboarding into the the world of meetings and and how has it been I'm always interested on this onboarding into like just a new code base I, I'm assuming it's probably one main application at this point you've talked about the the dry RB but you know even just getting it to run or setting up your machine that first day it can be quite a lot to take on and kind of grok all the patterns that that a company has but for For me, yes, it is one main application. There is a legacy application that some customers are still on, but they're migrating onto the the application that I'm working on. So what's really nice is in your first day, a part of the onboarding is going through the documentation of that application and getting it to run on your machine. And if for some reason something doesn't work, it's your responsibility to commit that change into the readme. And so I really do love engineering cultures where the belief is, is that you should be able to commit a, you should be able to create a pull request on your first day. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, so I think Chef was my first so first experience with um, being in what I call almost an edge case company, whereas all the other folks I'd worked for, either full-time or contracting, it was definitely Rails, Monorepo, uh, or Monolith, you know, but, but still there'd be tremendous amount to learn every single time. It's very hard. But then Chef uh, maintains, I think, hundreds of repositories, most all of them open source. I, I think that it was... Uh, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get. Well, I did get one on the first day, but it was mainly around, you know, the bin setup or the or the readmes or the docs, which is maybe the the one that you're meant to do on your first day because they want to get that experience off of you. Um, but yeah, it was is a lot to take on, and also moving from pure Rails to pure Ruby, and I actually didn't complain because my favorite part of Rails is the Ruby, right? So. Um, no, that's that's definitely the, the interesting thing. And and just as a slight digression while I've got it to mind, um, we were talking about remote, and I just want to say out there to some of the listeners, because I've had a peak in the market earlier this year. You've had a peak in the market uh, recently. You know, if, if you've not been in a new role in a long time, a lot of people I've known have been getting furloughed or, or made redundant or, or laid off. Um, when I was looking around earlier in the year, a lot of companies, because I looked remote initially, a lot of companies would turn you away at the door if you were looking for remote. And I swear to you, almost every one of those companies, about a month after I started from Chef, 
did a U-turn and we're either saying, please, we're taking remote now or we have gone permanent remote. Like everybody has done this shift. So even though there's there's a lot of churn and there's a lot of people that are having difficulty and maybe having reduced hours or, or losing their work at the moment, I'd say there's even more companies who have fully opened up for the first time to the idea of uh, fully remote employees, which is which is great. I think it's going to outdo all the losses that, that we've seen in some of these sectors. So uh, definitely revisit those companies that you may have looked at a year or two ago and see what they're doing now. I couldn't agree with you more. I think a good example is Shopify. They originally were not hiring remote at all, and they have completely turned around and they're creating remote programs. And so if you've ever considered them, give them a second uh, look as well. But I also think what you said is really insightful because you're right. If someone asks for immediately throw out that resume. And so now it's gotten to the point, I think, because of the pandemic and how developers are enjoying remote work, that if you don't offer remote at all, I mean, I've seen companies actually get attacked for that reason. And so I think some companies are going with remote indefinitely or remote, you know, and remote for the next year is what I've been hearing a lot of. And so um, I agree. I, I think that remote culture is just improving more and more, though it did, um, it definitely occurred to me that how problematic it was, and I don't know if you experienced this, on Monday, you know, the first day of school for a lot of schools in the United States, and Zoom had a massive outage. And you can just imagine how many companies and schools might have been dependent on Zoom for their entire workflow that day. See, I, I didn't even know about that. Uh, I think so. We're so staggered here in the UK where, you know, some bit sometimes are for England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Um, but I think our schools are getting back here now. And I didn't think about that. Right. We all knew Zoom before coronavirus. It was just another piece of technology we occasionally used. Right. And now it's become it's it's like uh just as common as Google. If, if you said to somebody, I'll Google this, they'll say, oh, Zoom, you, you know, I'll Zoom you. So it's it's definitely a lot of eggs in one basket. And if the entire education system is sitting on Zoom, um, that might be hard. I, I, will, I will say for, for remote policy, I'm proud to say that Chef, I think, has had it right from the beginning. 70% of our workforce is remote and distributed right now. So anybody can be a chef employee, but there are a couple of offices. So there's the one in Seattle, which, and the one in Belfast, which are optional. So it's kind of like, and I think this might be like the Basecamp Chicago model, where when the office was in, even though I've never been there and I've worked there for five months, um, people could come in whatever days they wanted, which it, I think longer term might suit me, I'm living in the city with the same coworkers. Is I might not mind a couple of days a week, um, especially having just moved to this country um, around some coworkers. Uh, but I do like the option of thinking, you know what? I just want to work in the house today. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely a, a massive shift that I don't think is going to change completely back to how it used to be uh, for for folks at home. So. 
I agree. I have two dynamics to look forward to. So currently, you know, working remotely permanently. My partner is also working remotely because of the pandemic, but eventually he will go back to the office because Jazz HR is based in Pittsburgh. And so having that dynamic of actually truly being alone at home will be interesting. And then once, you know, everything settles down, um, Text Us will have me come out to Colorado to meet my colleagues. And that will be really exciting just because at that point, I will assume I I've been there for several months and it'll just be really exciting to actually meet my team in person. That'll, that'll be the best of all worlds, right? Because you'll you'll have had the overcome the comfort with the with the code base and the flow and working with people. Then you'll just get the joy, the pure joy of actually meeting all these folks. But I've got to ask you on a similar uh, vein um, to how we used to talk about our keyboards. So home setup, dream setup, long term, six months, one year from now. One, what do you what is your current dream setup for working from the home base? And two, do you think you'd work at home long term, or if there is, or would you ever consider a bit of co working, or do you just love the the space at home? I love the space at home. I finally invested in another monitor, so I have that going for me. I am terrible. I have a mechanical keyboard that I'm not using, and so I've given myself a personal goal that I have to start using that keyboard. I don't have a keyboard at the right height, and so that is my goal is to get that keyboard at the right height so it feels comfortable to me because right now I've been using just a a base regular keyboard, but I can be as loud as I want. So the more annoying the keys, you know, that's acceptable. And so um, I imagine though, even when my partner goes back to work, I will continue to wear headphones. Now I've considered, you know, I have standard headphones at this point. I've considered going with some sort of AirPod type situation uh, just to give me a little bit more mobility around the house. But at this point, I'm just using using standard headphones. I am pretty easy to please, Nick. It doesn't take much to make me happy, but what does make me happy is that I do have a home gym set up at home, and that has been a huge, huge uh, part of just keeping me sane. How about you? Yeah, so at the moment, my my amazing story is I moved, I may have said this on the last call, but it's still the same story. Um, so I moved to Northern Ireland at the end of January and with the intent to immediately purchase a home and, with my wife. And of course, we were just going to stay a few weeks at the in-laws or maybe a month or so. And of course, uh, everything hit. So we are still here at the moment, but literally any day we might not be here anymore. Um, so they've been very kind. So I have a I have a home set up in the in the in laws house. But you know what? I've made it similar to my dream. I love the dual monitor. At first, I thought the second monitor was way over the top, and everyone looked at me like I was nuts. But as I and I also have my laptop on the MacBook Pro stand, so I do run three. But once you find homes for all of those, right? Like on my MacBook Pro, I have Spotify, Terminal, um, you know, just some of the base stuff, Slack. And then on the monitor on the right, I'd have all my browsers and the monitor in the middle, I'd have all my text editors. Um, you get used to it. And of course, as, as I've talked about before, the Ergodox is doing very well. You know, when I first got it, it took me about three months, maybe two months to get up to speed. But Brittany, I have not had hand pain in a year and a half. And I remember uh, Richard Schneeman having this whole thing talking about where he is off of work with hand pain right when I got that keyboard. And it's really, you know, I think investing in ergonomics is great. And maybe the next thing I'll go on about is maybe a chair because I have a horrible chair. And as you know, 
the sky's the limit for how much money you want to spend on an office chair. So I don't know if you have any recommendations there, but that's kind of my home setup at the moment. Oh, that's such a good question. So my current chair I got from a startup from oh probably eight years ago. That's where a lot of my equipment has come from is that I work with startups that eventually dissolve. And so as part of the, the severance, I get to take some of the equipment. So I have a chair and a desk and a Thunderbolt display that I've gotten. They've, they're almost souvenirs from my past. And so <laughs> I do appreciate having those. But that's a good question. You know, I have never gone to the standing desk. I've, I've thought about it, but I just don't think overall I would be at my most comfortable but it would be a good goal to at least try it for a little bit. I have thought about using a bouncy ball as a chair just to get a little bit more core work in, but I did used to work with a developer who stood on a wooden plank and that wooden plank was on top of a ball. And so he would stand there and have to constantly reposition himself while he was coding. And it just absolutely amazed me. That is amazing. Well, if anyone has any recommendations, there was one I saw from DHH, but the chair was like over $1,000, and I'm not sure if I'm at that point yet. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'd be interested in hearing that, you know, because we're, you know, you spend, I mean, think of what you'd invest in a mattress for a third of your life, a keyboard, you know, 40 hours a week. Similarly, that much of your life, you're sitting down possibly more, you know, even you, even if you try to be active, it's just, it's just going to happen. But um, speaking of uh, this time at home, and what we get up to, I do have a guilty confession to, to make while I have you here, if that's okay. Oh, I am all ears. Go for it. <laughs> um, so part of this remote world has meant that a good and a bad thing. Bad thing is like all the conferences are gone. And as you know, you and I, we love our podcasts and we love our conferences. And, the, and uh, it's been hard, you know, but the good thing about all the conferences going is most all of them have gone online, right? Rails, Yuruko was this week, Europe Ruby Conference, uh, Brighton Ruby, you know, so they've all done online things. And some of them have been free, some of them you pay for, and I've paid into several. Uh, and I'm just gonna confess here is this Ruby loving, Ruby on Rails loving person. It's now August, and I have not watched maybe more than about an hour of these talks. And I'm, I'm ashamed of it, but it's just, I realized that when I go to these conferences, it's a whole ordeal. You travel, you get set up, you get your coffee, you're with all these Ruby friends and you sit and stare eight hours a day, listening to these amazing talks. Right. But then when I'm in my home where there's family here or things going on, or I'm working all day, I can't really say to my employers, well, maybe I could, but I just, it feel silly to be like, Hey, can I just not work today and just watch all these conference talks? But even if they let me, it's just such a different. Yeah. So basically I'm confessing this publicly. So I shame myself into sitting down and actually watching all these wonderful talks from Rails, Yuruko and Bright and Ruby, because um, I got the book, the why the lucky stiff a poignant guide to Ruby this week, and it kind of reminded me, okay, I need to I need to listen to this amazing content because it always changes how I look at Ruby and work, and I'm a better person for it. So, there you go. There's confession hour. I love it. Um, well, I completely agree with you. A big part of my motivation is just having the commitment to do it. 
And so while I want to believe that personal growth is going to cause me to sit down and watch talks, really listen, take down questions, for me, I need to have some sort of skin in the game. And so a good example is that I've been wanting to reread 99 Bottles of OOP. And so uh, one of my amazing uh, colleagues is going to read along with me and we're doing like an informal review book club. And so that kind of gives me the inspiration of maybe I should do an informal uh, conference talk, not book club, but I don't know what you would call it, but something like that, that um, would just cause me to do that. And so I am in charge of text us now of our lunch and learns. And so it's kind of a good idea to maybe have everybody watch the same conference talk and then be able to discuss it. Because I think that's a big inspiration as to why conferences are so great because you know you're all watching the same content and so you want to think of insightful things so that you can not only speak to the speaker to it afterwards but really have a great time in that hallway track that's that's a really good point and when you watch it all together it saves you so much time if you're trying to get geek out about a concept after with a coworker or a friend right because you both just watched it so you can just say well wasn't that amazing instead of trying to re-explain the talk second hand to somebody. So yeah, that's that's a that's a really good idea. I like that. Well, we before we wrap up, I do want to touch base with you about past rubies and hear how that's going. I'd actually love to ask you how you were finding all of these links because the edition that came out today, I am just amazed at all the things that you were managed to find each week. Well, thanks for asking. So, I guess to answer your first question, I find the links with the help of Ruby and Ruby Automation. It's funny because Chef really leans on the automation uh, brand as well, but it's my favorite thing to do. So I have a private uh, uh, repository where I maintain a series of Ruby scripts. It's probably just orchestrated like a gem now. Um, Whenever I find an interesting Ruby resource, say somebody who wrote in the world of Ruby for about six years, I will write a scraper uh, that is custom to that page, even if it's on archive.org, and write it in such a way that I can supply it with a date, like today, and it will give me any post that's come from that resource uh, within a week of today um, in a year. And I'll do that with maybe about a dozen different resources. So whenever I'm not actually writing past rubies, I'm adding to these resources and building scrapers for them. So that literally when I sit down and say, I want to write a past rubies, I run one command, you know, ruby pastrubies.rb, and it opens maybe two or 300 links for me to pick from that are all resources, like whether it's blog posts or, or whatever. Um, that, that came out this week in, in Ruby history. So I'm cheating big time. Now, the real work is the curation, right? So I have these 200 links and I'm like, what's actually interesting? So I only pick about four or five because then I you know, do a little screenshot and a blurb. Um, so that's, that's the secret. Um, someday it might be good to actually transform that into a web page where everything's just there. But for now, I'm, I'm enjoying uh, my, my best friend Ruby helping me out. So that's the secret. That's incredible. I love that you've done that. I love that you've built it using Ruby. And now that I kind of know the secret sauce, I appreciate it even more. And I agree with the way that you're currently doing it. I like that you are the face of past Rubies and that you're the curator. It, it feels like even though it's an email campaign that I know that I'm receiving, it still feels like you're emailing me one-on-one saying like, hey, look at these cool links that I've found. Oh, absolutely. And the beauty of it is because of tooling like, uh, you know, I'd use, uh, um, I 
was it Derek Reimer who'd founded it, Drip? Um, but it doesn't really matter what tooling I use, you know, whatever email campaign. I can write this ahead of time. So if I write, which I'll occasionally do two or three weeks ahead of time, um, I can actually sit there and enjoy it with everyone else, you know, because I'll read everything when I curate it, but then I'll really just relax and digest it when it comes out. So I'm, like I say, I, I'm making this for myself, but anyone else who wants to join along can. Um, two, two that I found that were interesting from this week were um, we had uh, a slight misprint on the year, but in 2016, there was a great interview on Slashdot uh, with DHH. Um, that, that was fun to check out. And then also there was a Ruby or there was a languages survey from GitHub this week, five years ago. And it's kind of interesting to see how ubiquitous Ruby was in the early days. So 2008 to 2012, Ruby was the number one language on GitHub and it was still in third place as of 2015. Of course, this is when JavaScript jumped everybody out of nowhere, just straight to the top. But um, yeah, it's just kind of interesting to, to go through. I, I will say sometimes, though, it's painfully nostalgic to go through these things because there's times that are, you know, 2006, seven, way before I was a Rubyist that seems so cool. It's great now, but you know what I mean, that kind of really, really wacky time. But um, yeah, so it's been fu fun putting it out and appreciate everybody's subscribers are still slowly but still going up. So it really honors me that people are reading it and our open rates are really good, you know, uh, 35 to 50% every week, um, and sometimes more than 50%. Yeah. That's amazing. We will definitely link all this up in the show notes. Listeners, if you haven't subscribed to Pass Rubies, I highly recommend you do it. It just adds a lightness to your, your email inbox, and it really does bring you back to those times. Awesome. Well, that's, that's all I've got from my end, though. But uh, yeah, really enjoying Pass Rubies, and uh, it's, it's a fun time to be doing it. Absolutely. Well, Nick, it's always such a joy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on and asking me all these questions about my new job. I am really excited about working at Textus. And so, uh, listeners, if you have any questions, you'll definitely be hearing from my colleagues at Textus. I am slowly going to be bringing them on to the podcast just because they do a lot of amazing things. Jason, if you're listening, send me a Slack message because now I know that you made it to the end of the episode. And uh, listeners, we'll catch you next week. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review, and thank you for listening.